0: I want to take a quick second to chat about life. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Say your puppy needs an unexpected trip to the vet or you have upcoming rent or a bill is due. Earn In is an app that's helping millions of Americans to feel self-sufficient without falling into debt traps. EarnIn empowers you to live life to the fullest by providing up to $100 a day of your pay within minutes of earning it. There are no mandatory fees and no credit checks. All you do is download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. Download EarnIn today, spelled E A R N I N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the EarnIn app, type in BFF under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. BFF under podcast, subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. EarnIn is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC.
1: What's up, rich friends? Welcome back to another episode of Net Worth and Chill with me, your host, Vivian Two, aka Your Rich BFF and your favorite Wall Street girly. And before we start today's podcast, I wanna tell you about one of the best meals I've had recently. I was in LA, I went to a delicious Thai restaurant with a friend and we ordered a Thai style tuna tartare. There were fresh tuna chunks, finely chopped cucumbers, crunchy fried onion bits and chilies that added a delicious little kick in a tart lime juice. And to make it even better, it was served with the crispiest fried wonton bits and the entire dish was just perfection. But it got me thinking, how did a little tuna swimming in the ocean become this dish in front of me? And it also terrified me a little because the only fishing and seafood knowledge I had came from Seaspiracy and The Deadliest Catch. I like to consider myself pretty knowledgeable and eager to learn. So today I've invited a fish expert to come explain to us the finances and process behind the seafood industry. How much does it cost to catch a fish? Why are some fish more expensive than others? And what makes some fish so much tastier? Nom 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 nom. So let me introduce the CEO of my favorite tin fish company, Fish Wife. Everyone, please give a warm welcome
2: to me- Becca Milstein. Thank you so much, Vivian. I am Truly so honored to be here today as a very big fan of yours. Of
1: course. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thank you for being here. And before we get into everything, I remember growing up and bringing sushi or an Asian fish dish to school and getting made fun of. But nowadays, it feels like everybody's favorite food is seafood. When did that happen? When did every single little grocery store that you go into now have a
2: sushi department? It's a great question. So I mean, it might feel like that. But historically, Americans have eaten far less seafood than we're supposed to, according to the FDA, um, you know, guidelines. So historically, it's been about 80 to 90% of Americans are not meeting their weekly um, FDA recommended serving of seafood, which is two servings. So I would say that's still very much a prevalent um, issue in this country is that people actually aren't eating enough seafood. But that being said, the reason that you might have seen this switch over the past few years is that there was a huge resurgence of you know interest and purchasing power in seafood. Um, basically concurrent with the COVID-19 crisis. So, you know, as people were, you know, stuck at home, had more time, potentially, you know, for many people had more disposable income um, and more interest in learning how to cook seafood. There was a, there was massive growth in the seafood um, industry in the US. The tinned seafood industry specifically, which is what um, obviously I work in, um, alone experienced 10% growth from 2021 to 2022. So there has been a lot of just increased purchasing behavior, cooking, whether it's, you know, eating at restaurants over the past few years. So you're, you're not wrong in, in thinking that.
1: Yeah. And pivoting to you for a second, what made you want to start a tinned fish company? You know, I think it's so funny. There are so many different types of entrepreneurs these days. Mm-hmm. But if I were to see you on the street, I would have been like, oh, I think she's a fisherman or like she's a fisherwoman. Like I wouldn't think that. So it's just so funny. What made you decide to start Fishwife?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I was a totally average American consumer of, I would say, seafood and canned seafood specifically. You know, I grew up eating canned tuna in, you know, tuna sandwiches, etc. Very, very normal consumer. But I think, first of all, I had I had lived abroad in Spain in college, um, and there I had my first exposure to us culture, which I think is a, a very common American like tourist experiences to travel to whether it's Portugal or Spain, I get a lot of texts from people visiting <laughs> Portugal these days and you witness that there's this really gorgeous artisanal culture around seafood conservas. And you come back to the American grocery store and you look at the canned seafood aisle and it looks like maybe like medicine or like cleaning supplies. Like it's all just like blue and white. There is no one or none of the brands are really messaging like a culinary experience with their products. Maybe they're messaging, you know, a sustainability value proposition, but they're really not talking about like, this is so tasty. You should be putting it on rice bowls or in pasta or on toast, etc. So I think, you know, during COVID, I was eating a bunch of tinned seafood with my friend Caroline. We were living together and just like eating so much tinned seafood because it aligned so much with the way that people were grocery shopping at that time. So, you know, trying to limit grocery store trips to maybe once every week, once every two weeks, I think a lot of people found themselves in the position I was, which is, you know, how can I buy a product that is shelf stable, um, but also has a really high nutritional content and can supplement, um, you know, can be the protein supplement in, in my meals. And there's really like nothing but canned fish. It's also canned chicken, but like, let's be honest, the canned chicken market is lagging Um, and maybe canned beans, but like not a lot of food CPG. And for your consumers that are your listeners that don't know what CPG means, it's consumer packaged goods. It's the industry that I work in. Just not a lot of products answering that question. So and then beside that, there was just so much excitement from the culinary world about tin seafood. So coming from people like Anthony Bourdain and David Chang and Alison Roman, these people have just been espousing the benefits of tin seafood for, you know, five, 10 years running. And I think, oh, geez. yeah, exactly. And like, I think a lot of people took the opportunity of COVID to start creating these tin fish experiences in their own homes. And I had seen that in my own peer group, like people posting about like tin fish hour. And I was like, what is going on here? And then it was just really a light bulb moment of, you know, this is a huge category. It's almost a $6 billion category that has not had any innovation happen in it really ever in the US. You, and you just don't. I mean, you know, because you look at so many different sectors, like you rarely see an industry of that size that uh, has not been disrupted or, you know, just reinvigorated. Yeah. So that's why.
0: <laughs> OK, before we get into our next segment, I have a joke for you. What do you call a person who speaks three languages? Trilingual. What about someone who speaks two? Bilingual. So what do you call someone who speaks one? American. Only 22% of Americans speak a language other than English at home. Start learning a new language this winter and be the exception, not the rule. Because with Babbel, you start speaking a new language in just three weeks. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are a little more than games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, All of Babbel's tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching. Babbel's courses have helped me learn real-life conversation skills, so
1: now when I'm at the coffee shop, I can ask for a cafe con leche. And with Babbel, it's easy to pick up on how to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult
0: language apps while on vacation or while I'm in my day-to-day life. In fact, studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. For instance, one study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. With over 10 million subscriptions sold, Babbel is real language learning for real conversations. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners to get you started right now. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com slash richbff. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash richbff spelled dot com slash rich BFF. Rules and restrictions may apply.
1: Kind of like what you mentioned, I always feel like in my head, canned fish, when you walk down that grocery store aisle, it's just like kind of Mm. mid, like you never think of something. You're like, oh, I could really, I really want to wow someone with, you know, hors d'oeuvres or an appetizer. I'm going to get canned fish. It was always like, oh, I'll get these pre-sous-vited duck confit legs that you can get from the gourmet department and just heat them up and like people will love this whatever and i immediately just think of canned tuna and how it doesn't have that much mm. flavor you know especially if you're getting it uh in water versus in you know a spanish mm. olive oil but you know i've tried your products i love them you know i'm a huge huge fan like what how did you decide to differentiate in this industry to your point of like disruption mm. when it's been a decades-long centuries-long industry that hasn't changed that
2: yeah, much yeah it's a really good question so we, I mean, we tried to differentiate in a number of ways. I would say the first and the most obvious is our brand positioning. So, you know, we were very much inspired by the the real artistry around conservist culture in Europe and many other parts of the world. But I think the one that I was familiar with was, was Europe. Uh, and that was really kind of like the seed of the company was, okay, we, we, th- this is an amazing product. It's like so healthy, it's shelf stable, like it deserves basically a rebrand. So like it kind of started with, I, I, I didn't think I was going to do as much innovating on the, the flavor profiles and the supply chain and the species as we ultimately ended up doing. At first, it was like, okay, we need to just put tinned fish in a different light. So, you know, we created this really fun brand. It's really inviting. And it's really, really different from everything that's on American grocery store shelves. So, you know, it has a sort of a mascot in this fish wave um, and it's really playful and vibrant. So that was kind of the first thing. And then I started getting into the flavor profile. So I was like, okay, yeah, what is out there on on the U.S. grocery store shelves is like basically like no flavoring at all or no no innovative approaches to like the what is actually going on in the can. So um, I started looking at products, starting to work with canneries in both the U.S. and outside of the U.S. So we started working with a cannery in Spain and started developing a preserved lemon flavor, which we thought was, you know, it's not so out there that people are going to be like nervous about using it all the time. Like you don't really want to create a product that people are only going to want to eat like once a month. Like you kind of want to create something that people are going to, you know, the the flavor palette is not so overwhelming that you're not going to want to eat it multiple times a week. So that's kind of like been our guiding principle on the flavor development is like, we want to create products that are really differentiated, mostly through just the quality of of the product itself not going too crazy with the with like flavor additions etc like the fly by jing smoked salmon which you've referenced um mm-hmm. that's kind of the furthest out that we've gone on like really innovating on flavor i think we really wanted to start by just creating products that were really really delicious and really welcoming so like the core line of products that we launched 2021 was all smoked fish, which I think just the American palate really, really loves is like smoky, salty, and sweet, and that's kind of what we went for. So we did smoked albacore tuna, smoked rainbow trout, and smoked salmon. And those products are really great because they are—I mean, you've tried them; they're the quality is so so high. Everything is also obviously like hand cut, hand packed. It's just stunning. But the flavors themselves are not so pronounced that. You don't want to eat them like every other day.
1: Yeah. And you can make them, make them into other things. I'm seeing mm-hmm. a lot of people using your products to make dips or little appetizers. And that's nice that there's some versatility there yeah. as well.
2: Yeah. So that's continuing to sort of guide our product innovation pipeline.
1: Awesome. You know, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but Fishwife. Where did you get the name? Tell us, what is A fishwife? I love this story. So yes, of course.
2: So I was very lucky to get the name actually the day after Caroline and I came up with the idea to start the business. So I was calling every entrepreneur I knew. Um, I think that's a really great way to start working on a business and it definitely worked out well for us. And I continue to call like 10 entrepreneur friends every week for you know advice, et cetera. But so I called my friend Greer who runs a textile company with her sisters. And I think she was just Googling fish fishing terminology and came across. This term fishwife, which is this really it's an old term, it dates back to the 16th century. And it uh, you know, it used to be a neutral term that were referred to the wives of fishermen that would sell their husbands fish at the market, you know, while their husbands were out at sea. And because of the like extreme perishability of fresh fish, they gained a reputation for being really like loud and bossy, um, and just like so swearing <laughs> at people like. Bye, my goddamn fish! So then, over time, it evolved into like this gendered slur for women that were really like loud and bossy and swore a lot, um, mm-hmm. and that just really
1: so me, yeah, exactly. Like us girls, like us. It does.
2: So it really just like resonated so much, and it's also continued to be awesome because I can like swear all the time. Like I have permission to just swear in a professional context because it's the namesake <laughs> of my brand. So I'm very happy with that choice.
1: Love it, love it so much, and you know, going back in time a little bit, is this something that you know your family has been in the food mm-hmm. business? Like, what's your background? How would you describe your upbringing? Did you have experience in this space prior to starting Fishwife?
2: Yeah, so I did not. Um, I, uh, I mean, I'm from New Hampshire. Both my parents are medical in the medical field, and. I worked in the music industry my whole career. So I graduated from college in 2016 and then worked um, in brand partnerships and artist marketing for four years. And so no, nothing to do with seafood at all. Um, Which, I mean, when I was starting the company, I was calling, you know, founder friends. And I was like, is this insane? Like, can a person that has no background in an industry, you know, start innovating that industry? And the answer is always yes, because like so many of the disruptors obviously come from this outside, you know, come with an outside perspective. But I think the impetus is hugely on you to make sure you are equipping yourself with extremely strong resources um, and and people that have been involved in the industry for 10, 20, 30 years. So, um, no, I I think, I think my background in, in branding and brand partnerships and like audience building, um, obviously has is actually super I mean, I say this all the time. Like my professional experience is very, very translatable to this job, and people are always like, "How is that true?" But I would, you know, my old job was like creating brand identities for artists and their albums, and then like launching those artists, releasing those albums, and we go through a very, very similar process of fishwife when we're coming up with, you know, the concept for a tin fish product and branding it and creating a story around it. So it's applicable, but I definitely not not my background.
1: (laughs) And I ask, you know, all the entrepreneurs, all the creators that come on the show this question, because I think it's really important to acknowledge, like if we come from privilege, Mm -hmm. would you say growing up your family was lower income, middle income, you know, higher income? Did that have any bearing on your decision and your ability to, you know, quit your day job and start a company?
2: I'm so glad you asked that question because I kind of try to bring it up in in interviews a lot just because I think it's so important. Like you do find in the founder community, like a lot of people have come from really, really immense privilege. I definitely, you know, came from both my parents were doctors. I got put through college, definitely came from so much privilege, especially on the educational front. And I think that really matters because the educational piece, like, I mean, I can talk about fundraising, but like when I went to figure out how to fundraise, like I had this amazing community. I went to Brown, which is like an amazing college full of entrepreneurs. And those were the people that like taught me how how a person could raise funds. So I would say I definitely came from a lot of privilege that allowed me to do this. Yeah, I worked in the music industry, so I did not have a lot of savings. Like that was not my situation. Like basically, I think this is an important thing to talk about too is, you know, when deciding how to start the business, whether to raise money, etc. I was like, how am I going to buy all this fish? I don't have... A lot of money in the bank. I put probably like I put half my life savings into getting the company off the ground. But then it was like I need to do this full time. Like we basically, I mean, we got national press coverage and and sort of like national interest vis a vis C very early on, and basically immediately it felt super irresponsible for me to be. I was working another job. I was working another startup for I don't know eight months. The first eight months of working on the business, and it felt just like insanely irresponsible to be running a seafood business while doing another job. And I was like, I need to go full time. I raised a, a smallish round of capital. They call it friends and family, but it's mostly from angel investors. Yeah. And I paid myself, you know, I paid myself, but I paid myself a pittance for the first two years of the business. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But like I was able to pay myself a pittance and be okay because I didn't have student loans. And right. yeah, I think it's like insane privilege to be able to start your own business. And like, it's why bootstrapping? I think there are maybe you've talked about this before, but like there are certain myths about bootstrapping, etc. And like it's just tricky because bootstrapping is not a reality, even for someone from like a tremendous privilege like myself, unless I wanted to grow the business very, very, very slowly. I'll just say very slowly once, um, and gradually, <laughs> but even then, it's like you. Running a business while doing another job, at least I experienced a lot of guilt about that because I was like, I have real customers out there. I need to be 24-7 focused on this business, making sure that, you know, the QA, QC procedures are happening, that we're sourcing responsibly, etc. So I think bootstrapping is amazing when you can do it, but its I think it's pretty hard for for most of us to figure that out if you don't have like family supporting you, et cetera.
1: I was going to say, I think that's a really thoughtful answer. Personally, when I started Your Rich BFF, Mm -hmm. I actually worked a full-time job for a year and three months before I quit. And frankly, a big reason why I quit was because management and agents wouldn't sign me unless I was doing it full-time. And to your point, I mean, I was one, so burnt out, but two, it just felt like I wasn't able to give 100% because I was so tired. Totally. And it definitely, it definitely takes a toll on a founder to feel like you can't be there. And this is your baby, right? Like you built this. This is something that you are so invested in and not having that time is, I'm sure, very challenging. But that has ended up well for the better for you. I do want to ask, because I think people are going to be mm. curious You said you put half of your life savings into this company. Are you comfortable sharing that number?
2: I think so. Yeah. I had saved up like a little less than Mm $30,000. So not a lot, but like something. So I think I put about, I don't know, somewhere between 15 and 18 grand to buy. I mean, to buy the inventory, um, et cetera, to get off the ground. Yeah.
0: But before we talk more things fish, I do want to talk a little bit about myself. As you guys know, with the amount that I'm working and prepping for my book launch and going on tour, it's really easy to feel sluggish and a little bit stressed. That's no surprise. But if you've been a long time listener, you know that I've been drinking AG one over the past year. And when I started drinking AG one daily, I could feel a real difference in my daily health. I had so much more energy. I was more relaxed and I could focus. That's because AG one is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support since 2010. And AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition and continuously refined their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. In fact, because I wouldn't stop talking about it, even my friends and family have started drinking AG1 and they always tell me how much more energetic they feel, that their gut health feels supported, their stress levels feel more manageable, and that they're just getting the nutrients that their body craves. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily and that's why they've been a partner for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first. Purchase, go to drinkag1.com/slash rich That's drinkag1.com slash rich Check it out.
1: You said thirty thousand. It was 15 to 18 to inventory. What did you spend the other 15 or 10 grand on? Was that just like infrastructure costs or tech or
2: yeah, branding. I mean, we paid, we hired our illustrator Danny really early on. So paying him for that. We did a um, I think this was like three grand. We did a Um, so like an MVP, so a minimum viable product. For those that don't know, it's like uh, startups often really want to get a minimum viable product out to market to test the market, see if people are actually interested in the business um, before investing a shit ton of money into it. So we created a minimum viable product that was a branded box with um, samples that we had been testing with canneries put into our branding. And I love to bring this up to people because I think it really is important to have a minimum viable product. And it's also really hard to figure out how to do that. Because like, for example, the canneries we were talking to have MOQs, uh, minimum order quantities of you know 25,000 units at minimum so you do you want to get a minimum viable product out there before you buy 25,000 units for you know three dollars each it's like that is a sh- that's a lot of money that's a lot of money that I didn't have so so yeah so a lot I think like three to five thousand dollars went to creating these branded boxes and you know shipping them out to uh, the customers we were testing with um and then legal fees I mean I think that's also something that people talk about a lot yeah. especially when it comes to like bootstrapping etc is like you got to do it right. You got to do it right. There's so much. There's so much bending the rules of, you know, legal, like when you actually need your lawyer to write a contract, when you can get one from another founder, etc. But if you're actually really going by the book, it's super expensive. Like one co-manufacturing agreement. So these are the agreements that you, you know, hire your lawyer to put together to make sure you're protected in the relationship with you and your co-packer. Co-packer is like the person that produces your product. So a cannery for us, but like that can run you between if you do it the cheapest way like $5,000, but if you like that's like with your team kind of doing a lot of the work, but like it can run you up to 10 grand to do like a legal contract. So, it's something to think about people don't people don't think about how much legal fees cost. So, and then like getting a fundraise up and running, um which we did, you know, right after launch, maybe yeah, like 6 months into working on the company, you know, you need to hire a lawyer to oversee a fundraising process and manage that. So, So fun. So many fun little things. So
1: fun. And let's move our business brains over to the actual fishing side of the house. Can you just walk me through fishing industry basics like how much money is the industry worth annually like how does it work
2: yeah so it is it is a crazy crazy industry fish is fish and seafood are actually the most globally traded um, food commodity in the world and it is just a commodity that moves around the globe but 90% of the seafood that we consume in the U.S. is actually from outside of the U.S. often fish that is caught um, or raised in the U.S. will be sent outside of the country for processing and sent back to be sold. So it's mm. really, it's just an insane industry from every angle. I mean, the global the global seafood industry is about a $600 billion industry. Oh my it's God. It's big, big, big money. Um, and the North American seafood industry is about $40 billion. The canned seafood industry is projected to be at about six billion over the next couple of years. Um, and as I mentioned, has has really experienced a, a ton of growth over the past three years. So yeah, it's a really big industry. There are, I mean, especially in the canned seafood space, just a handful of really powerful incumbents that that dominate the industry that have like gobbled mm-hmm. each other up in, you know, international acquisitions, et cetera. And I've also like been embroiled in a lot of like, you know, price fixing scandals, et cetera. So I think it's, I mean, I think it's a very, and, you know, speaking to your introduction, it's a very confusing industry for consumers and it's a bit scary. And, I think there's a, there are many reasons for that, um, which I can go into all of them. I think, you know, the one that I like to talk about a lot for obviously my own purposes is there really aren't any brands in the industry that people know and relate to. So let's say like Vivian, what's your favorite ice cream brand? Mm. I know it's a hard one. I have several.
1: Probably Van Leeuwen's.
2: Okay, great. What's like your second favorite ice cream brand?
1: Ooh, um... Not ice cream, but it's Halo Top. They okay. do like a nice, healthy alternative.
2: Amazing, I love it. Um, I just listened to that podcast about that company. So insane, such a crazy story. You could probably name like four more ice cream brands yeah. that you love. Or <laughs> like, what are the seafood brands that you love oh, other than I don't the have obvious? Any. Yeah, I yeah. Other
1: than, other than fish, <laughs> white, I can't really think of much. You know what? There is one, and only because it had a pop culture moment with Jessica Simpson. Chicken of the Sea is not chicken; it's tuna. And that is the only reason why I remember that.
2: Exactly. So I mean, gotta love chicken out the sea for the for creating the space for that beautiful pop culture moment. But there's just no, there are no brands in this category. And like, that's, again, it's very rare to find such an enormous industry that has no brands. And I think the lack of brands has contributed to a lack of understanding around seafood, because we do look at brands like how you're talking to me right now. We look at them to help us understand, you know, the, the mechanics of the industry and help like tell I mean, brands are storytellers, so like they tell the story of their product. And because there are no brands in seafood, like no one is doing a very good job of telling the story and many of which are just incredible, incredible stories. So gosh, I can't even remember what the question was or what I'm even talking about. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) Fishing industry basics, like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think there are, I'm really curious because I was reading this piece about how there was a major problem with mm-hmm. Somalian pirates. Mm-hmm. But in reality, those pirates were just fishermen who could no longer make a living because mm-hmm. major fishing corporations had basically destroyed all of the fishable area. in you know, off of the coast of Somalia mm-hmm. due to deep sea trawling, which correct me if I'm wrong, it's basically where they take like a mega like rake shaped thing and just kind of like scoop up everything from the bottom up mm-hmm. and It just completely destroyed the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, there are obviously so many factors impacting the fishing industry. I think what you guys obviously do a really great job of branding and also sharing is that Mm -hmm. your fish are sustainably farmed. Mm -hmm. Like when someone says like fish is fished, is that like a guy with like a rod or is that like a mega, you know, deep sea trawler? And then when you say sustainably fished Mm -hmm. or sustainably farmed, like, I, I just like, I'm having a hard time picturing what that looks like because I know what a farm looks like when they're growing corn or if they're growing wheat, but fish don't grow out of the ground. And h- how do you farm fish?
2: It's such a great question. And you had, to, like, <laughs> I mean, I'm so glad you're asking this. There were like a couple a couple questions and what you brought up. But like, I think what you're talking about is they call it IUU fishing. So it's illegal, unreported or unregulated fishing. And it's definitely just like one of the biggest threats and challenges to the fishing industry from every aspect, from like the, um, from the labor aspect and and human rights aspect and also the environmental perspective. And unfortunately, one fifth of wild caught fish in the globe is caught illegally, which is horrible. Mm -hmm. That's a huge percentage. It's a huge percentage, um, and for reasons you can imagine, traceability and fisheries management is very, very complex, and that's why this is the case. But let me get into your question about like yeah. far- farming versus wild fish, because this is like the biggest. It's it is the biggest area of confusion. People do not understand it. There's just, and I have learned so much, and I'm so grateful for that opportunity. So, so basically seafood sustainability there are zero blanket statements like there really aren't any except maybe that that uh shellfish aquaculture so like oysters and mussels and raising um, oysters and mussels is like always sustainable. I, have, I can't think of a situation where raising shellfish would be unsustainable. They don't require any feed inputs. They're like a self-sustaining, both of those species. So that's kind of like the only blanket statement I, I think you can say about sustainability in fish and seafood. Otherwise, things are really quite nuanced, um, which is why I think there's why people have so many question marks about how to buy sustainable seafood. Okay, so we can break it down into, you know, let's say farming and fishing. So a fishery just for people to know, because I, I hear there's a lot of confusion about this, like a fishery refers to a wild capture fishery. So that's in the ocean, that's fishermen catching wild fish. A farm relates to an operation where people are raising fish, not not wild fish. So, so I'll first look at farms. So there are many methods of aquaculture I'll zoom into our rainbow trout. So rainbow trout is basically, by and large, not commercially, uh wild trout is not commercially available. When you're eating trout, there's a, I mean, I would say it's like a 99% chance you're eating farm-raised trout. I know there's like one fishery up in Canada that's like in this big lake, but I doubt that the the lay person is eating that trout. So the trout farm that we work with, it's the biggest trout farm in America. And it was sort of an an acquisition of several individual trout farms. And basically what you can imagine, this method of aquaculture is called land-based flow-through raceway. I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but what it is, is just kind of imagine like an Olympic-sized swimming pool with different lanes in it. And those lanes are protected. So instead of like an actual swimming pool where you could swim from one to the other, there's you know walls and barriers between every lane and the flow through part refers to water being pushed through that olympic size swimming pool to ensure that there's a ton of motion in the water so the fish are swimming back and forth and the water's being kept clean so it's really amazing because a lot of these aquaculture operations have to exist in a particular geographical location because of the um like geographical elements so or like or geological elements so for example and i know it's getting a little bit nitty-gritty but it's really cool so the valley that our trout farm is in in idaho was split by a huge like flood in you know prehistoric times and it has resulted in all of the in an ancient aquifer being cut and so there's all these waterfalls that are bursting out from wow. um like the cliffs that are on either side of the valley. Promise, we'll get to a place that makes sense. So, the trout farm harnesses the power of these waterfalls and diverts them into these like Olympic-sized swimming pools. So they're actually not even needing to come up with the like energy. It's 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 ah. um, hydroelectric energy that comes from um, this bisected aquifer. So anyway, I know that was a lot. I feel like I went a little bit deep, but that is one method of aquaculture for. Another example, there's something called a RAS system, a recirculating aquaculture system that actually looks like a huge above ground swimming pool. So that's like completely, you know, not touching any part of an external environment. And that is, I would say is still a very burgeoning industry, but a RAS system, so that's like completely contained. It does require a ton of energy. Um, and there have been a lot of problems getting it to work really effectively, uh, in the US at least. I I'm not familiar a ton with RAS systems um, because I don't work with any of them that are working super well. But I think it's a huge, huge area of opportunity and we'll continue to see that develop and I think will become a very big part of our aquaculture um, industry. But anyway, so all that is to say is there are many, there's open net pen farming, which doesn't sound, I think people have a, a very... Strong ideas of what open uh ocean a net, uh, net pen farming is and 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 by the way there there are reasons for you know aquaculture does have a I think a stigma um for many people it's a really 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 relatively new industry I mean it's. People have been doing some form of aquaculture for thousands of years, but like this sort of commercial industrial aquaculture is still in its nascent stages. So there has been irresponsible farming, there have been escapes, there's been sea lice, etc. Like what you saw in Sea Seaspiracy, but that's some players and not the, not others. It's like when you think about you know the poultry industry, obviously there are horribly irresponsible and abusive farms, but then there are also amazing amazing ones, and it's the same thing in aquaculture. So I think I think that's. I'll, I know I'm talking so much, but like basically <laughs> the, the the moral of the story for farms and I'll get into fisheries is that there are people doing it extremely well and extremely irresponsibly and people that are not doing it well. And that's kind of like how it is with every, I mean, with every industry generally, but with every, you know, food, food industry. So there's no blanket statement, you know, farm raises is, is better or worse. You kind of have to like dig into the farm. That being said, most people don't have the time to dig into the farm. So we work with um, ASC certified farms. ASC is the Aquaculture Stewardship Council. And that's the global standard for um, sustainable, responsible farming. So if you want to get farmed fish, which I would highly encourage. I mean, there's amazing, nutritious, really high quality farmed fish in the world. I think you can refer to the ASC seal. It's a little light blue seal to make sure you're making a responsible decision. Okay, I'm going to talk about fisheries. For less time than that because i know that was a lot but it's kind of the same thing with fisheries there are some that are super responsibly managed and some that are are not or they're unregulated and they're not you know being properly monitored or regulated so like the north uh, north american fisheries we have some of the best regulated fisheries in the world in america that's the magnuson steve i always like say this wrong the magnuson stevenson the magnuson stevens fishery um bill was passed in the 70s and basically it just put a lot of standards into place to make sure that the american fisheries were being were being properly regulated to ensure their sustainability so we have we have really great fisheries in the u.s i think people can feel really great buying american-caught seafood products but they're are many fisheries that are not as well regulated um and that's where i think you can get into situa- situations like you're talking about with the somali pirates where there's just less strong regulation um less effective fisheries management and just to give you an idea like what is fisheries management um so so much to unpack here vivian i feel like this is it's really just it's it's quite a bit but
1: i love that you are nerding out on this <laughs> so hard you're like i love fish so much
2: Yes, it's I mean, there's just so much. And I think it's really challenging because I want people to better understand the seafood industry. But when you do try to dig into it, you don't want to give blanket statements because they're because they're not true. It's like there's no species that's always sustainable other than maybe shellfish, as I mentioned earlier. And there's no fisheries that are always sustainable. Like these things change. They, they change a lot. So I think that's the challenging aspect is like when you are thinking, this is this is the nexus that I give people to look at when they're thinking about seafood sustainability, you have to think about what species of fish it is, where it's caught and how it's caught. Mm-hmm. And that combined is like, that's the, that is the fishery. So there are, it's it's just like every time you think about um, a seafood product, you have to look at it from that angle, which is a lot of angles to look at. <laughs> I love
1: that. And, you know, we- You have said there are no blanket statements. However, I do want to move on to a slightly lighter note. (laughs) We're going to do a fun little lightning round. So you are going to have to make some decisions. Oh, no. um, And the questions will start easy and they'll get a little harder as we go along.
2: Okay. Okay. Scared, but I'm ready.
1: First up, tuna, salmon, or rainbow trout. Pick one.
2: Oh, my God. So hard. I'm going to say rainbow trout, even though I love salmon. wow it's not the rainbow trout i say rainbow trout because not enough people are eating rainbow trout and it's the best thing in the world so rainbow trout
1: love that you go to the store you see a label wild alaskan caught Mm -hmm. or sustainably farmed which one are you buying
2: oh my god so hard i like farmed salmon because it's so fatty and delicious and because i think there's really amazing like the farm that we work with is just a really incredible, innovative farm. And I think that more farms need to follow suit and, and innovate and like invest in advancements. Oh, I'm sorry. That was so much more than you asked for. But oh my gosh. Depends on what you're eating. Depends on what you're eating. Cool.
1: Um, what is your favorite type of sushi? If you were to order
2: oh my gosh so tough i mean i love scallops um i love toro but toro can be complex because blue if it comes from if it's true toro and it comes from bluefin tuna bluefin tuna is really uh by and large not sustainably a fish so i wouldn't eat that but i think most of the toro i would be getting is also not from bluefin tuna so i love toro
1: since we are fish wives fuck mary kill flounder from little mermaid marlin the dad from finding nemo or mrs (laughs) puff from Spongebob
2: Squarepants. Oh my god okay fuck the dad from <laughs> Nemo. Can I-, I don't know Mrs. Puff so we can kill her. We can kill no, her.
1: Wait you, did you not watch Spongebob growing up?
2: I did but I haven't watched it in a long time. Okay all right. And what was the last uh, one?
1: Flounder from Little Mermaid. Okay
2: obviously Mary, Mary Flounder. Very, very wow. So that is fighter. a
1: surprising lineup for me. It's not where I thought this was going to go, but I am happy to hear it.
2: Love, love it. Love us, Addy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Last but not least, if you were a fish, what kind of fish would you be and why?
2: Oh my gosh. I would be, I, I was in Hawaii for the first time and I saw a very long fish that looked like a pencil. I think I would like to be that. The fish. pencil fish. The pencil fish. Just because I'm like, you're so crazy looking. I want to look I want to be like that.
1: (laughs) Are we like confident it
2: wasn't an eel? It wasn't an eel. It was like the funniest, funniest little pencil fish, but I don't know what it was called. But I was like, it would be cool to be that long.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And to wrap our episode up, Mm -hmm. I do want to ask, you know, economically speaking, I'm Mm -hmm. sure you've noticed things have gotten a little tighter Mm -hmm. with consumers' wallets. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you best recommend people who enjoy fish, who enjoy seafood to get it for the least expensive prices while also keeping in mind all of the things we've discussed today about, you know, buying sustainably and not completely destroying the planet? How do people affordably eat the seafood that they love?
2: That's a great question. I mean, I will take this opportunity to advocate for the tinned format just because tin fish, It's it's been proven that, you know, tin fish reduces food waste because, you know, it's like you're making a whole fish and you might eat half of it and then maybe you put it in the fridge and then you're not actually going to eat that the next day. And so yeah. I would say like buy, buy canned fish, like whether it's fish wafer or some other kind, like it's perfectly portioned for one one, you know, meal. Um, and then you don't waste anything and not wasting is affordable. Like as as you as I feel like you know, it's just don't buy yeah. what you're not gonna
1: eat. It's so crazy. I was just doing research for another piece of content I was making. Nearly forty percent of food in the US is wasted and it amounts to four hundred and eight billion dollars of waste every year.
2: Oh, that's a lot of money. See, that's I think I think that's what I would advocate people reframe, like when they're looking at maybe a piece of fish that's bigger than a can of fish, it's like, okay, maybe it is, maybe the ounceage is more, but like, you're not, are you actually going to eat that whole thing? If you're, you know, a a person with a partner or if you're living on your own or what have you, like whatever you can do to prevent food waste, even if it's getting a higher quality, more expensive product, which is kind of the philosophy I've been living by recently.
1: I love it. Okay. Please tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find Fishwife.
2: Um, you can find Fishwife on all social channels at at Fishwife, and then our website is eatfishwife.com, um, and you can get all of our products there. And then we're in Whole Foods and a bunch of specialty stores around the country. So, um, but the website is your best your best bet.
1: Amazing, awesome! Thank you so much for being here today. I had so much fun talking with you and nerding out about fish.
2: Oh, thank you so much for letting me nerd out about fish, movie. It's a real
1: <laughs> privilege. Amazing.
2: Thank you. Oh my God, I got so nerdy. I really got to get better. I got to get better.
1: Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Net Worth and Chill. If you like this episode, make sure to leave a rating and a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Got a financial question you want answered in the future? You can leave me a voicemail or text me at 908-858-3410. Make sure to follow me at Your Rich BFF across social media for even more relatable financial content. Special thanks to my team at Audioboom, as well as Range Media and WME. See you next week. Bye.